Let me read my title because I forgot. Uh, it's my first time preaching the series. Biblical problem solving. That's what we're doing. Biblical problem solving. Um, today, it's uh, dealing with hopeless, a hopeless cause. But it's not regarding how to deal with people that we think are hopeless. Because it's not like people are projects that you work on them. It's, it's more like, what does Jesus say? How are we supposed to uh, treat people then? If we're not supposed to see them as projects, as, as hopeless causes, then what are we supposed to do with these people? Um, and I want to challenge us this morning uh, to think, is there such a thing as a hopeless cause? Have you ever felt like yourself, like, oh, it's just hopeless, I can't do this, or it's hopeless, this person's never going to get it? Um, after the study we do today, We'll talk about that. Is there such a thing? The passage we'll be at today is Matthew chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or on your phone, Matthew chapter 8 is where we're at. Um, and it talks about Jesus healing two people that, or uh, casting out demons out of two people that were possessed by demons. Um, in first service, uh, more than halfway through the message, I brought up this person and I said the name. And it could be that it was first service and everyone was asleep or or they just didn't know who this person was. And I know we all sometimes feel, we're in situations where we feel old, but in this situation, I just felt young. I don't know if that ever happens to you. Like I say a name of someone who's not even that young, but I just, you know, I feel like a lot of people were like, who? But like, show of hands, like, you ever heard of Kanye West? Right, it's, it's a common name, it's first service. It's, I swear people were like, who? Who's he talking about? Okay, so a couple years ago, uh, Kanye West, uh, he is uh, a hip-hop artist, uh, best of all time, according to him, and uh, he came out with this album that I thought really was amazing. It was called Jesus is King, and in this album, he professes his faith as a follower of Christ, and as soon as I saw the title, I thought, well, Kanye talks a lot about God and himself, and he equates himself to the level of God because of his skill and because he just thinks really highly of himself. So I thought, maybe this is some type of gimmick. Uh, maybe it's a hoax. A lot of people immediately, without hearing the album, thought this is just, he just wants money. He's always been known to be kind of churched, grew up in church, but he has said things in his music that very much do not uh, show the heart of a follower of Christ. So I was interested. As soon as they came out, I heard the whole thing, and it was awesome. He, he according to his own words, did accept Christ, had a total change. He talked about doctrine. He talked about wanting to be a new person. He talked about people who were Christian who gave him a hard time about wanting to be a new person as if there was no way God would do that. And then a lot of controversy happened after that. People saying, oh, there's no way this guy saved. Oh, there's no way. It's just a gimmick. He wants money. Listen to the album. He's saying just the right things just to get people to believe, but watch, he's not going to do it. And, well, that upset me, because if you think that about God, he can't do this, then, then what hope do we have, right? What hope do sinners have if the moment one of them actually finds Christ, people are like, oh, no, no, that doesn't count. This guy doesn't. I know what he's done. But that's exactly what the Bible's trying to say. We, once we have Christ, we're not condemned by our actions. We can be a new person. And if us, as followers of Jesus, we publicly condemn these people who we think there's no way this person knows Christ. There's no way they can turn. They're, they're hopeless. There's... 
Just look at them. And there was a lot of that about Kanye West. Um, now, from then to now, he's done a lot of things that uh, make me scratch my head. Like, well, I'm not going to say the things he's done, but he's done things that I'm just like, you know, that doesn't put you in a very good light. That makes people believe what they're saying. That you, But I just see the struggle of a person who's met God. But what do you do when all your life you've been going a certain direction? You have all the money you want and you can do whatever you want. And then now you know Christ, but you still have those temptations. But I, I do genuinely believe that he knows Christ. And I am upset at people, even people I know who thought that it was fake. There's no way. And I just think you diminish the power of God to say that God can't do that. God can't reach those people. And that's what we're going to talk about here. In the passage we talk about, Jesus reaches people who people thought were unreachable, who people didn't want to mess with. And uh, so as I was going through the message in first service, you know, I, I talk about Kanye West, and I'm hoping people will be like, oh, yeah, like that. But it was more like, who? So I kind of killed the momentum. So I explained that first. You know, keep that in mind, right? Like, God can change people. And we're going to talk about an example that happened 2,000 years ago, but, I mean, it still happens, right? The power of Christ is able to save people no matter what they've done. The only bad thing about Kanye is that he's very active on social media, so we see everything this dude does. So he kind of does that to himself. Um, but that's what the study is on, not Kanye, but Matthew chapter 8. So for context... Um, I always like giving context when I teach, so even though my section is the last part of chapter 8, I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about chapter 5 and on, um, so that we really get this picture. So chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes, he stands on the side of a mountain, and he delivers a sermon. It's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. In the sermon, he teaches things in this order, sharing your faith, murder, adultery, divorce, keeping your word, revenge, loving your enemy, then giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, worrying, finances, judging others, finding salvation, and false prophets. I have a hard time teaching on one of those things on a Sunday morning. How can he do all these things in one sermon? I don't know. He's really good at transitions and stuff, but he did this amazing teaching um, that as a follower of Christ, that is like a really good place to start if you want to know the basics of what are we supposed to do, how do we live as Christians, check out the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 talks about all these things. So in chapter 8, Jesus comes from, down from the mountainside where he's given the Sermon on the Mount, and as soon as he's at the bottom of the mount, he runs into this person who has leprosy, and Jesus heals him. This guy is away because with leprosy, you're an outcast. You're not, you're not, people don't want to mess with you. You're contagious. So they say, you go live out there. If you ever want to come close to me, you have to walk and let us know you're unclean by shouting unclean so that everyone knows that you're unclean and they stay away from you. So if you need to come close to do something, we all get away. So that's why this guy was out there. Jesus heals him. It was crazy. Then he goes into the city, which this guy can now go into the city for the first time in who knows how long. He enters Capernaum. Many people are still following him from the Sermon on the Mount. So just keep with me, delivers a sermon, people are following him, they see him heal someone from leprosy, then they all go into the city. In the city, he heals a paralyzed man who wasn't even around. It was the servant of someone else, and he says, my servant needs your help, he's paralyzed. Jesus says, says I commend you for your faith. So yes, he's healed, and turns out the guy wasn't even there. Wherever he was, he was healed. Um, 
We learn that Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus heals her. So now from this little section, we find out that Peter was married at some point. We don't know about his wife. We don't know if she was gone by this point, but we know he has a mother-in-law, and he was taking care of her. Um, Then Jesus heals, it says here, many who were demon-possessed, and he healed all the sick in Capernaum. So Jesus is doing a lot of things right after his Sermon on the Mount, which is crazy because after my sermon, I'm going to go nap. So the fact that he's like, all right, let's get started, bring all the sick people, that's incredible, but it's Jesus. He's different. He noticed that there were a lot of people around him, and he decided to take his disciples away, so they go across the lake. They get on a boat, and I have a map here. Capernaum is all the way up top. On the left side of the red dot, they get on a boat, they cross the Sea of Galilee, they go all the way in the bottom to the Gadarenes. So as they're on the boat, um, Jesus falls asleep, and a furious storm comes, and the waves are tossing and turning, so much so that they all think they're going to die. So they wake Jesus up, and here's where people ask, how was he sleeping through all this? It's not like it was a big boat. He definitely was feeling it, and it's the same thing I said. I mean, after all that he's done, he, he probably was tired. Uh, so he was sleeping. I joked in first service, because it always works in first service, that there's people already falling asleep. And if you're falling asleep now, how, imagine how Jesus feels. So they wake him up. Uh, he gets up. He calms the storm. But before he does that, he kind of rebukes his disciples for saying, how can you have such a little faith? And little not by word, like small, meaning short. How could you forget so quickly? You saw the crazy things you just did. You saw the demons come out. You saw the people walking. You saw the healing. And, and now you're just, now you think I'm going to let us die in a boat? And that's what he meant. Because people were like, that's a little harsh, Jesus. I mean, they thought they were going to die. And he, Jesus is just saying, you've seen me do these things. Why do you pretend like, like suddenly after all we've been through, I'm just going to let you go here? So Jesus is saying, you have to have more faith in me. So... He calms a storm. In another passage, not in, not in this gospel account, another one, it says that he said, peace, be still. Some people say that he just says, peace, be still, and the storm calms. Some say that he declares it, and he says, peace, be still, and then it comes down. Some people say he was sleeping, and he rolled over, and he was like, ah, oh, peace, be still, and then it calmed down. It doesn't really matter how. The fact is that he just said it, and it happened. And when he did that, his, his disciples were like, who is this guy who just said things, just said, be still, and, and the ways calm down. <clears throat> so, a reminder for us that God is mighty, and he is merciful, and he's done many great things for us, and for those around us. So we shouldn't forget that God is good when we're going through our own storms in life. Right? The uh, the The... This, pe- this passage, when people preach the sermon, I don't like it when people like overdo it and they're like, this storm is all the troubles in your life. And, God, and it's, I don't like it when you overdramatize something, but for the sake of you remembering this and symbolism, uh, there, is, there are storms in life. God didn't say that once you accept him that life was going to be easy. If anything, it's going to get harder. You're going against the grain. You're going against the world. But he does say he's going to be with us. So God is going to be with you, and you've seen how good he is, and you've seen that he can do great things. So when trouble comes, don't forget how good he is. It's like Jesus is telling you, how, after all we've been through, how can you think that at this point I'm just going to let you go? 
after how much I've loved you, why would you think that right now I'm just going to say this is where we stop and this is where I'll let you go? No. He's going to be with us. He's going he's to carry us through. Then we get to our actual passage of today. Uh, what time am I supposed to put down? Matthew 20. Well, I just don't do this a lot. I always forget. 12? All right. Um, when he arrived, verse 28, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarene, so, oh, where the map was? They crossed the, the sea. Two demon-possessed men came from the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And they said, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us to, those, to that herd of pigs. He said, go. So they came out of the two men and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed to the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town, reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So there's a lot going on in this passage, and I think it all matters, so we're going to go in detail. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Bible information, um, it, but it's all relevant, so it's going to feel like we're just going through like a really deep Bible study, because we are, but I think it's all important. So, verse 28, it talks about these people were, that were in the tombs, these two demon-possessed people. Uh, why were they in the tombs? We don't really know. It could be that they just wanted to scare people that were mourning. It could be that they wanted, us to, they wanted to give in to that superstition that the spirits of the dead were in these people, so they weren't demons, but they were actually spirits of the dead. We don't know. Maybe they just liked death. But these people were there uh, at the tombs. The next verse, when they see Jesus, they immediately say, what do you want from us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? It's interesting that the demons recognize who Jesus is right away. When his own disciples who are with him, living with him, still question them to themselves, who is this guy? After all they've been through, they're still like, who is this guy that can do all these crazy things? And these demons just immediately, son of God, what do you want? It's interesting also because it shows us that not just because you know Jesus doesn't mean that you are saved. These demons know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God, but it doesn't mean we're going to see them in heaven. James in chapter 2, verse 19, he says that believing in God is not enough to be saved. It's proclaiming faith in Jesus. He says, you believe there is one God, good, but even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So even the demons believe God is your. It doesn't mean that knowing God means salvation. And why that's dangerous, why that should scare some of us, is because what we are saying as a church, the reason we exist is to let you know that what God wants with you is a relationship. Not just to know who God is, as in, yeah, I know God, you know, I go to church every Sunday, we're tight. Well, that's not really what he wants. He wants a relationship. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. There, it's, I use this example with the youth group a lot, uh, with freshman boys um, specifically. It, it works best because it seems so true. If a freshman boy had a girlfriend, but he only called her once a week for like 30 minutes, how do you think that relationship's going to work? Not very well. It's funny because when I ask that, they're like, well, it could work. And it's like, no, it's not going to work. 
A relationship isn't really a relationship if you only talk to someone for a little bit of a time. I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but what if I turn it for this? Is it a relationship with God if you only talk to him? Meaning going to church, you just go to church for one service a week and that's your relationship with God? Can you call that a relationship? See, in a relationship, there's the back and forth. There's the talking, the communicating, getting to know each other. How do we get to know God? Well, we have the Bible, we can pray, we can fellowship with other believers, we can read books, we can do many things just to get to know who God is more. But if we don't really have that relationship, and if we're not trying to do what God is telling us to do, then it's more like an acquaintance. These demons knew who Jesus was, but they didn't have a relationship with him. So they're not going to have eternal life, and we're not going to see them in heaven. That's just something I want us to think about as, as we keep going here. The demons also said that they asked Jesus, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So we know that in the end times, Jesus is going to throw the devil and the demons into the lake of fire where they will suffer eternally for all their wrongdoings. There is a t- they have a deadline, and they know what it is. They're aware of it. So they're saying, are you here to torture us before our appointed time? Like, it's not time yet. Why are you here is basically what they're saying. Well, here's an interesting side note on demons. Because they know their time is limited, their sole purpose is to create as much chaos and confusion in our lives to keep us away from God. They know their time's limited, and they know our time's limited. So they're saying, what can I do to distract this person, to confuse this person, to divide this person in their church to keep them from knowing God. A demon cannot possess the follower of Christ. We have been, the Bible tells us we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and we cannot be possessed by, by the enemy. But they definitely can distract and tempt us. They want to keep us isolated or keep us divided against those we're supposed to be with or we're supposed to help. And in that way they win. Corrie ten Boom, uh, she's a lady who did a lot of work with uh, uh, Jewish people, helping them find refuge. She wrote a lot. She's a really great lady, has a lot of faith, and she said this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. It may not be that you guys are here like, well, I'm not doing anything crazy. It's like, well, it's not that. It's, but what are you doing, right? Are we so busy, so caught up with what we're doing with our own daily lives or in our own schedules that we're not really... Honestly saying, uh, you know what, I think I'm doing this too much. I'm putting too much of my time or money, resources on this thing, and I'm not really following God like I should. We may not even get the chance to think that because we're so busy with everything. I just have one son, and he's not that busy. He really doesn't do anything. But I'm already a busy person. I can't imagine... Some of you that have two, three, four kids and all their sports and their schedules and your schedules and your extracurriculars and your, you know, whatever. I know stuff piles up, but what I'm asking, what I'm saying is not that these things are bad, but how do we prioritize our life? Do we make ourselves so busy that we don't leave room for God, for the work of God in our lives or for God to use us to reach other people? That's what she said. If he can't make you sin, he'll just make you busy. Either way, we're not doing anything. So then what is God calling us to do? When someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he says, in Matthew 22, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you were to water it down, 
Give it to me straight. What am I supposed to do? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your heart. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. As we keep reading this passage, we're going to see how Jesus is demonstrating this. How do we do this is the question. Let's just watch what Jesus does. The best thing we can do is just look at what he does and try to, try to copy him. If we are doing what Jesus is doing, even though we may screw it up, we're trying, and, and that's better than anything. So verses 30, 35 is where uh, things start getting interesting. There is going to be a little bit of history here in context, but bear with me. It's, it's all going to make sense. So quick Bible study here because there's three things you should know. It'll make a lot of sense. Um, this is more because I love um, more of the apologetic stuff, like uh, defending the inerrancy of the Bible. In this passage, in Matthew 8, it says that there's two people that were possessed by demons. The same story, we can find it in the book of Luke and in the book of Mark. However, in those two accounts, there's only one person who's demon-possessed. So here, people will say, see, that's, that's a discrepancy. That's an error. Here it says two, there it says one. These guys made a mistake, and that's not necessarily true. What could have happened is that in, this, in all three accounts, only one person spoke. It could have been that the other two accounts, they just recorded the guy who actually was speaking and not the other guy. Maybe they didn't even know if the other guy was demon-possessed. As far as we know, he wasn't even talking. So it doesn't mean that the second person wasn't there in the book of Luke or the book of Mark. It just means that Parley just didn't think it was worth writing if the guy was not doing anything, which even in this account, we don't really see him doing anything either or saying anything. So it's not really an error. But if some of you have been wondering, hey, I've heard the story before, but I just remember one person, it's because... The, 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 more than for the story with the passage with more information is the book of Mark. That's the more famous one. And that talks about one person. So this one has two. It's not an error. I think it's just the way they chose to write it is different. But everything still happens the same. It still talks about the calming of the storm. It talks about the, the demon-possessed person. It talks about the herd of pigs into the sea. It's all the same thing except for that one little detail. Then, on the demon-possessed man, in this passage, we don't really learn much about him, but in the other accounts, we learn more about him. And it's important to get to know who this guy is. In the book of Mark, it tells us that um, well, at least one of these men had been in prison and kept under guard for a while in Caperna, or in the city, because he was so violent. So for a while, they just thought this guy was violent. Something was wrong, so they, they, they would keep him under guard and chain him up. Well, then he started breaking his chains. He started breaking free. So then they thought, okay, this is weird. There's something going on with this guy who keeps breaking chains and breaking out. He would scream all day, and then he'd grab stones and start cutting himself. Well, then the, the, something's really weird. This guy has crazy strength, and he's hurting himself, and he's screaming all day. And this passage tells us later that when he's talking with Jesus, he says, My name is Legion, for we are many. So it's believed that he has like a thousand demons in this guy. This guy that's why he's so strong. That's why he's able to do all these things. And, and uh, we read that in the book of Mark. According to Luke, it has the same details, but it adds that he's naked. Um, I don't know, Matthew. I feel like that's a pretty important detail to add. There's a naked guy uh, screaming, coming at Jesus. Matthew didn't think it was worth adding. So, all right. Maybe he was just sparing us the details. Um, so this is who this guy was. Troubled for a while. He couldn't be contained. He started hurting himself. He was going crazy screaming. He was naked. So then he just went off to the tombs. Now, in this story, we see there's two people doing this. 
And then the third thing to talk about before we keep going is to talk about the pigs. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about it here, and Jeff has talked about this before, but um, in Jewish culture, pigs are considered unclean animals. You're not supposed to have pigs. You're not supposed to touch unclean animals, let alone eat unclean animals, and you definitely were not allowed to raise them to sell because you are basically giving an unclean animal to someone else, and you're still not supposed to do that. So why did they have this, these unclean animals? They were obviously in a place where people would see them. They were by the tombs, which are common to go to. So there's reason to believe that the village as a whole, chose to ignore this law, to break this law, because they likely benefited from the sale or the consumption of these pigs. So as a whole, these people were breaking the law and acknowledging or saying, we'll allow this, no one really has to know. We're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're by the tombs. No one really has to know what we're doing here. They're not supposed to have pigs. That's significant. In verses 30 to 32, so back to the study, um, we see that even as the demons know that they're doomed, Jesus is going to cast them out. They say, well, at least send us to the pigs. Why? Because they want to cause destruction however they can. So they say, if we're going to go, we're going to take all these pigs with us. We're going to damage their property. We're going to hurt them and take all their money by, uh, by sending these pigs out to the, to the lake. Jesus didn't send them to the lake. They, the demons did it themselves just to cause one more uh, way of destruction on their way out. Which again reminds us of when Jesus talks about the devil and his demons who follow him. It says that the devil is just here to kill, to steal, to destroy. And we should expect nothing less from the demons. All they want to do is cause trouble. And what's sad is how much of that is in the church, in our church. And our church is not aside from that. If, if you've been coming to a church in the Midwest long enough, you'll hear the stories uh, that church this, or that minister this, or they over there, they do these things. The rumors are crazy. Not that California, where I'm from, is not like that. But there's a lot of that here. And what's crazy is that a church like ours, with the potential we have to do such good, what is, what is the biggest thing that the enemy could do for us, or against us? It's just to turn us against each other. Because when we're just fighting each other, when we're complaining about things that don't really matter, then we're focused on the wrong thing. So he's not making a sin, he'll just make us busy. Endless meetings and fighting and complaining. And, and I'm not trying to call anyone out, but I mean, it happens everywhere. I remember, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes, but I remember when I first moved here, these, these things were paneling, like 70s paneling, which I thought were cool, by the way. And... and uh, my first year, they were like, hey, let's do a drywall. I'm like, oh, I guess, makes sense. You would not believe the type of drama that costs in this church. How dare we replace God's paneling? He himself carved it out of those trees back in the 70s. It was silly. And if you were upset at that, I'm sorry. But some of these things are so silly that get, we get worked up on, right? Soon enough, we're going to have the conversation, should we replace these pews with chairs? Some of you here are saying, not my pew. Well, some of these pews are just broken. That, that, I broke that pew, actually. <laughs> so these things are happening, and people fight about it. So instead of us focusing our, even our, our uh, um, energy into fighting for the good things, we fight for the wrong things. We fight against the little things in our church we don't like. 
And as a minister, no, not even that. As a young person, it's more like, man, why can't we just, why can't we just, you know, it's just the pew, or it's just, it's just the carpet, or it's just, does this really matter? I'm sure I have been on the side of things that, you know, maybe I've been stubborn about certain things. Maybe. I still want Jeff to allow us to build a pole barn for the youth room. If I say, you know, enough times, maybe it'll happen. Um, and maybe some of you will think, well, that's the stupidest thing, whatever. But if we get caught up fighting each other, then the devil wins because we don't do anything. And all this energy, passion, money, resources, time is wasted on foolish things that don't even matter. And you know what's even more sad is that we lose people every time something like this happens. They say, oh, well, if you're not going to listen to me about this, or, or if you don't respect me enough, then I guess I'm going to go somewhere else. You're not hurting us. You're not hurting the staff or the elders or the deacons. You're hurting all of us. Because we're choosing to be divided and to walk away over something so petty. Something that God would not want us to waste our energy or time on. So the devil wins when we let him be a part of all this chaos, the confusion. And that's what the demons do. That's all they want to do. Whenever there's a fight or an argument going on, they're just standing in the back, just high-fiving each other. We did it. This will last for two months. And next time there's a big decision to be made, they won't even remember, they won't even focus because they're still going to be worked up by the thing they broke the other day. It's true, we break a lot of things. If we move on to verse 33 and 34, um, we see that the craziest thing happened. He dem- Jesus demonstrated his power and his mercy. And these people say, can you just leave us alone? They did not care that these two people who had been hurting themselves, who were in anguish, demon-possessed, had just been healed. And in, in another, in a Mark tells us that these people were clothed and in the right mind. It's like they came back. These people didn't care. They just said, can you leave us alone? There's a couple of theories as to why. Maybe they were angry that they lost the pigs. They lost a lot of money. And it was a good amount of money because it was a large herd of pigs. They could have been angry that they got caught. So it's one of those, you know, when, when you're... Like if I ever get a teenager in trouble for doing something... And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. And it's like, you're sorry you got caught. You're not sorry that you did what you did. It could have been one of those. They were just frustrated at the situation. They were not repentant, but they were just frustrated that it happened. Maybe they were upset that Jesus is going to start holding them to these things. Hey, what else are you guys doing here? If you're doing this, I'm sure you're doing other things. What else are you doing here? They were, maybe they were, they were like, man, if he actually walks into town, it's going to be crazy. So Jesus, you should probably just leave right now. You don't want to see what's happening. We don't know. But it's shameful because they did not care that two people just gained their health back. They were more concerned about losing some property. So now let's take all this and apply this to our lives. There are people in our lives who we, would, who we may consider a hopeless cause. People who we may think they're too far gone. They are, there's no way God would do some, there's no way they mean it. There's no way that they're going to know something. They're just, Kanye West, come on. Even more so, I'm just going to drop this in there. 
Even more so like Eminem. A song just came out with Eminem where he professed faith in Christ. It was crazy. I don't know what to think of it. But I'm not going to be like, ah, oh, that's, just, that's just, you know, that's a sham. That's not real. That's not up to us. But many times we, we do that. We immediately peg someone under the category of there's no way. Maybe there's people in your life that you have tried. You have tried to help them. And, and this is a, a more sensitive subject because I know many of us here have people that have hurt us or our family members that we keep trying over and over to get them to see God, to see truth. If we're like, if you just did, if you would just get this, God, we are for you, we love you, God is for you, the shame that you carry, you don't have to carry, this anxiety you have on your chest, it can go away if you would just come with us, and they just don't want it, they keep going in their ways, or they show promise, they turn for a little bit, but then they go right back into it. You may be that person, or you may be hurt by a person like that. But still, these people are not hopeless causes. Then there's the people who you may just know about. Not very close to you, but you just know they need help. They need someone to talk to. You know that they're alone. You know that they're troubled. You know they're not making good decisions. And God may be telling you, hey, that person, you know what you have to do. And you see them at work every day. And you know them enough. You walk by them enough. And God is saying, go talk to that person. And what do we do? No, God, sure, no. What am I going to do? How am I going to help? What am I supposed to do? Or what if I try to help, but they want way more than I can give? Or what if they want to do something that I don't want to do? And it seems every time God is challenging us to do more, we put our own restrictions. If God is telling you to get a little more involved, and you're like, oh, well, God, what if they ask me to serve in children's ministry? There's no way. God, what if they ask me to join a small group? I'm not going to be in a small group. We keep putting these lines of like, God is saying, what if you do more? And you're like, well, I don't want to do too much more. I want to do this much more. We do what these people in the Gadarenes do. We, these people knew Jesus. They've heard of him. They know what he's about. They saw him heal someone. He cast out demons. But even though they knew who he was, they still said, we just need you to leave. Do we do that in our life? Do we experience the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and we just say, you know, I see it, but I don't want it. Or I'll give it to you here. God, I'll be here every Sunday morning. I may even join a small group. And I'll serve every so often. And I'll come to the hangout on the hill. And I'll do all the... But I just... This area here, if you want to walk in here, I'm going to need you to leave. And we do that. We do that all the time. These people uh, need our help. And they need us to be in the right mindset to help them. Some questions for us to ask ourselves. Do we try to help these people? Or do we immediately just get discouraged, we feel unequipped, and we just say, you know what, I can't even, I don't know what to do, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Without even asking God, without even praying, without even, you, you just kind of automatically say, surely there's nothing I can do. Are you available when someone needs your help? Or are you too busy to help? I shared in first service something that kind of broke my heart, something that happened you know, a while ago where someone said, someone uh, was doing something, working on something, it was a big deal, and I felt bad. I'm like, hey, you should have let me know. I would have loved to help you with that. And, and that person said, well, I just know you're so busy, I didn't want to bother you. And that's the, whole, that's the whole reason I'm here. So if I seem like I'm so busy 
and people don't want to ask me for help, then I'm, I'm missing the point here. Because I want people to know they can come ask help of me. I want people to, to know that, hey, something's bothering me. I'm going to go talk to Gabe. We should all want that. We should all be available enough that the, those around us, God may be telling them, hey, go talk to so-and-so. And, and you don't want them to think, oh, they're just always so busy or they're always so cranky or they're always so busy. For a long time, that was me. Totally not understanding that God was just calling me to, to be present. I was more focused on just doing things. And I was so busy, I couldn't even be there for the people that I was supposed to be there for. How many times do we do that? Do we just let our schedule control us instead of us control the schedule and we don't have time for, for God's people? 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. And we're supposed to love our neighbor, and we're supposed to represent love. Can we say that we're always looking out for people, protecting them? Do we, we're always trusting, we're always hoping, we're always persevering? Can we say that we're pursuing people with that tenacity that 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to? Because love, love is deep. Love is patient and kind, and, and we're supposed to pursue these people. And, and it seems that sometimes, I'll speak for myself, sometimes we just give up too quickly. We get too busy, and we just kind of justify it. God, I'm just a little busy right now. What would Jesus want us to do? Well, based on what we saw him do, uh, he expects us to, to take these people on and to show them his love. Something I, I noticed when I studied this passage, you know, the reason I like giving bigger context on a Bible study is because these things happen uh, if you just focus on a little passage, you miss like something that happened right before definitely ties into the passage, but you won't see it. There was a group of people last year that here at Mount Pleasant that were reading the New Testament once a month. They would read the whole New Testament in a month, then do it again, then do it again. And what they said that was interesting, it's when you read like the whole book of Matthew as a whole, you see the whole picture, even though the book of Matthew takes a span of like three years, you see the whole picture and the stories make more sense. It just kind of flows more together. When you read the Bible and it's just kind of scattered, these points don't make sense. So that's why I felt like we had to go a couple chapters back to see the heart of Jesus. Jesus is tired. He's been preaching. He's been healing. He has been with people. He's with people, right? He's doing his job. If you see what Jesus is doing, people are all around him. You can say, yeah, just stay. Keep doing your thing. But instead, he gets on a boat, he leaves his people, even though he can keep doing stuff, he gets on a boat, he knows there's going to be a storm, he still goes, he knows that there's going to be demon-possessed people there, he knows that the people are not going to receive him afterwards, but he still goes. He, goes, he just goes across the sea, heals those two, and then comes right back. And to me, that shares something really cool, that Jesus did all of that just for those two people. Jesus was willing to leave all that, go through all that, because he cared for those two so much that he said, of course I'm going to interrupt my schedule. Of course I'm going to let myself be inconvenienced. There's people that need my help. Can we say that? Can we allow ourselves to be inconvenienced because someone needs our help? Can we put a pause on whatever we're doing to help those in need? So the Bible, I think, has made it very clear that, it, uh, that it's not God who calls people hopeless. 
It's, it's us. We're the ones who say, oh, these people have no chance, or they're too far gone, or I don't even know what to do, I just don't have time. We're the ones who are saying that. We don't make time or find ways to serve. It reminds me of the time when Jesus was on the cross and his own people who he had been serving and healing for years, they're the ones who wanted him up there on the cross. They're the ones who picked him to be crucified over the, the thief or the, what was it, zealot, the murderer. And while he was up on the cross, being the son of God on the cross, he could have just been like, you know what, God, <laughs> never mind. Take these guys. I, these aren't my people. Let's start over. Bring another flood. Let's do it again. He could have, right? But what did he say instead? He said, God, forgive them. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In that moment when he, when he gave everything for these people, he still said, I'm still going to die for them. These are my people and I love them and I'm here for them. And I wonder how many of us in that position would, would just not not have allowed ourselves to be as inconvenienced. When you read the gospel, you notice how often Jesus gets interrupted. Every time Jesus is supposed to be somewhere, it's like his disciples are like, Master, teacher, we're supposed to, and Jesus is like, this is important. And he does this thing, and then he keeps walking, and then he sees someone else, and then someone is like, Master, we, hang on, we got to do this too. It takes him forever to get anywhere because he's letting himself get interrupted. He's on a mission. He knows where he's going, but he allows himself to be interrupted because he knows people need him. And that's all that I wanted this to bring out of this passage. Are we allowing ourselves to be inconvenienced just as Jesus was? Are we allowing ourselves to, to let people in, put a pause on our schedule, on our time, on our resources, on everything, to focus on other people, to not just discount them right away and say, I'm too busy, you're a lost cause, I don't think this is going to work. Do you take time to just listen to God and say, God, what do you want me to do here? Surely everyone here has someone in their life that God wants you to to minister to. The job of ministering isn't just for the ministers that stand on stage on Sunday mornings. We are all called ministers of reconciliation. We all have a duty to reach people around us. Some of them, I'll admit, will be tough people, but everyone deserves to know that God loves them, that the weight that they carry of shame and guilt and anger, frustration, anxiety, God is, is willing to help them with it. He says that, hey, my yoke is easy. Right? My weight is easy. My burden's light. I'm with you. Come close to me and I'll come close to you. Every person deserves to know that. And God may be wanting to use, God, actually, God is wanting to use every one of you here to reach that, to share that message with someone around you. Are you allowing yourself time to talk to God, to strengthen that relationship? And are you asking him, Lord, what can I do? The band can come back up now. I know that uh, some of you may have people that, that you know that are struggling, that need help. It's been a battle for years. There's been pain. You here may be that person, right? You know you've hurt people. You know you're not right with God. You know that you sin. You're aware of that. You know what sin is. We all do. But what I'm saying here is that we're not supposed to be condemning those people or feel condemned. I'm saying that Jesus says there's hope. Jesus is for you. 
Jesus was willing to do all these crazy things for these people, he loves you and he wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to know that no matter what you've done, there is redemption, there's forgiveness. And he wants to remind you, those of you who, are, who, who need help reaching other people, he wants to remind you, those people aren't done. Because Jesus is alive, because his spirit is with us. These people can be reached. There is hope. If these people could be healed from, from literally being possessed by demons. If Kanye West could accept Christ. If all these things could happen then why do we stop pursuing some of these people? I want this morning to, if you walk out of here with anything, to just be encouraged, maybe challenged, that God is calling you to do something. And if you are here and you don't know Christ, God is wanting you to know Him, to have a relationship with Him, to have an actual relationship with Him. We're glad you guys come here on Sundays, always. But we don't, want you to just have an acquaintance with Jesus. We want you to know him. We want you to be involved. We want to help you further your relationship with God. So I want to pray for you guys. There's a, there's, there's a prayer in Colossians that Paul says that this, one, this one's a good prayer that if you don't know what to pray for people that you know are struggling in their faith, uh, this is a good one to, to, uh, to pray for them and pray for it often. I like to read this to our youth often to encourage them. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As you pray for people, pray for them often. Pray that, that God, don't just pray, hey, uh, God, I, I just pray that they would be saved. Pray more specifically than that. Lord, I pray that they would see how good you are. That they would see that, that what they're pursuing is going to flee. But that they realize that if they pursue you, you're going to fulfill them. Their heart is going to be full of joy and they're going to want anything else. Help them experience peace. And when they experience that peace, help them crave that instead of anything else that they're pursuing. Help them find a community of people that love them that's going to encourage them to know you more. Maybe pray, God, help me be more equipped, full of your spirit and wisdom and words to know what to say, to be patient because we've been through this for a long time. To know what to say because I feel like I've said everything I could say. Be more specific with your prayers. And I think that's how we can reach people more. I'd like to pray for you before we close in worship and invite you to come up here and pray. We have the Kellys and the Eastons here who would love to pray for you. If, if you want prayer, if you're struggling because you know that there's people around you that need Christ, or if you yourself want to know Christ and have an actual relationship with Him, not just know Jesus as an acquaintance. Let's pray. God, I thank you.